Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Hannah Alcoseba Fernandez, Chief Correspondent of the Philippines for Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. In today's show, we are going to talk about the plight of Indigenous peoples in celebration of the Philippines Indigenous Peoples Month. The Philippines has gained notoriety for being Asia's deadliest country for land and environmental defenders, according to watchdog group Global Witness. Many of the activists are Indigenous peoples who safeguard the forests and seas that they live in. Yet over the years, they have faced threats to their sustainable way of life and the protection of the environment that comes with extraction, overconsumption, and overproduction. In 2017, a massive military operation was launched by former Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte to drive away the Lumads, a collective name of the indigenous peoples of Mindanao. Victoria Viquita Willy Corpus, then the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights on Indigenous Peoples, publicly condemned the displacement and killings of the Lumad communities. As a result, Tawili Corpus was labeled as a terrorist by the administration. A Kankanei Igorot woman from the mountainous Cordillera region in the northern Philippines, Tawili Corpus has become one of the most prominent figures in the global movement for the recognition of indigenous rights. Last month, she was shortlisted for the Nobel Peace Prize, one of the two indigenous peoples' leaders in the world who became contenders for the prestigious award. Although she did not bag the top prize for the Philippines, like journalist Maria Ressa last year, the indigenous peoples' leader remained steadfast in her advocacy to empower indigenous groups. Join us in welcoming Victoria Vikita Willy Corpus to the Eco Business Podcast. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you very much, Hannah. Thank you for having me. How does it feel to be considered for the Nobel Peace Prize? Well, it's an honor to be considered as nominee. I, I never thought in my wildest dreams that that will ever happen, but somehow I got to learn about it from the media. It's a good thing that kind of recognition came about because it also makes the issues of indigenous peoples more visible the link, the direct link between protecting and respecting our human rights and enhancing our capacity to be able to contribute to the global environmental crisis of climate change and biodiversity erosion. First off, can you tell us about your work for Tebteba? I'm the founder and the executive director of Tebteba. It was uh, founded in 1996, and basically it emerged because we, at least myself and some of my colleagues, felt that not enough issue was being given to indigenous people's rights issues, which are basically collective rights. When you talk about human rights, it's usually in reference to individual human rights, but for indigenous peoples, it's both individual human rights and collective rights, and we felt that that aspect of the rights that indigenous peoples are fighting for need to be made more visible and people are more aware that is indeed something that will mean their very survival as distinct peoples and cultures if we are able to get the United Nations to really develop an instrument to protect our rights 
and get this to be approved and supported by nation states, then maybe there is a bigger chance for us to be able to, uh, not just to survive, but to contribute in uh, bringing about better changes for the dominant society as a whole. First off, I'd like to backtrack to 2018. Yes. If now you can speak about it, I, I, I would yeah. think. If you could tell us about the aftermath of you being tagged as a terrorist by the Duterte administration in 2018. At that time, I was already the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which means that any state, for that matter, cannot file any case against me or identify me in those terms because I'm supposed to be an independent expert and monitoring and reporting on the situation of indigenous people. So when I got included in the list, immediately I reached out to the United Nations, the Human Rights Council, as well as the Secretary General. And of course, I was glad that they responded as and also made a big issue out of this. There were meetings held with the Philippine government in Geneva to ask questions about why I have been included in that list. And of course, a sort of a kind of global campaign uh, ensued, which which led in the end to the withdrawal of the list. No, because it was not just myself. There were other, I think there were 300 or 300 of us in that list, armed men, you know, to just go after anybody in that list. So, so it was scary. But I was in New York for some time because I, I also had some business. I was uh, attending the United Nations Permanent Forum, which I used to chair. And so I stayed on there for a few more weeks and then I came back. So you didn't go into hiding? No, I, I thought, I'm, you know, with the kind of attention that at least the global community has uh, has given to the issue, I thought that it would be a, a mistake on the government's part to really arrest me or do anything against me. So with that, I thought, I, I, I really don't want to live outside of the country anyhow. <laughs> but, uh, you know, those kinds of problems never stop. You know, I had a brother. I, now I have a brother, again, who's in the list. And so, and it was uh, recently released by the Anti-Terrorism Council. So these kinds of accusations and labeling never stop, but that's the kind of story we have in the Philippines, unfortunately. Can I say, it's accurate to say that it didn't really bother you too much? I, I was an activist during the years of the dictatorship, you know. And when martial law was declared, my name was already court included in the order of battle. So my father learned about it and I was, we were in Bontoc during that time. And the commander of the Philippine army in the province was used to be a classmate of my father who studied at the Philippine Military Academy for a few years. No, he brought me to the to the general and and he cleared my name. And again, as I said, I had a brother who was detained in Mindanao, another one who was detained here. So it's something that we in the family of being human rights activists and environmental defenders, it's something that sort of comes along with that kind of commitment. In a way, you just sort of have to get used to it and just have to I know the risks, uh, at least ensure that, you know, your, your security is, you know, you are more careful you know, in terms of where you go and with whom you are going with. And just take it like that. What else can we do? I mean, because if we just live in fear, then of course that will stop everything that you are doing which is not needed at this time, especially at these times that indigenous peoples are always subjects of these kinds of attack. So you've never given in to fear? 
not really. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the Philippines? It's been the most dangerous place for environmentalists, according to Global Witness Report, for the past five years. Well, it's it's unfortunate, really, that that's the kind of situation in the Philippines. You know, being a UN Special Rapporteur, I have been to many countries because I officially visit countries as part of my mandate. And and if you compare the Philippines with these other countries, I, I'm ashamed to see that, you know, our country is really one of the worst in terms of those kinds of attacks against human rights defenders and environmental defenders, the kinds of violence done against people who are just simply doing what they believe they should be doing is totally unacceptable. It's such an embarrassment that it's happening in our own country where, I mean, we are we are quite, we have very good laws to begin with. You know, we have a very good Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act. And yet, this is the kind of picture that we see. What makes you say that compared to other countries that you've visited, the Philippines really is the worst? I've been to... I've been to Mexico, I've been to Colombia, which except for, of course, the the degree of the drug cartel control in those countries. But, and, and of course, there are also a lot of journalists, for instance, being killed in Mexico and all. But it's not as bad as I have I see here in the Philippines. It's really bad, usually, because we have all these killings as well. And even some indigenous authorities have been killed at all. But I think that... The, in terms of, of course, they are also high in the number of the global witness, you know, as the countries with those high number of killings and disappearances. But, you know, the the way it happens in the Philippines, for me, is it's it's a different, I, I, it, it's sort of different because in the, in Colombia, for instance, or in Mexico, sometimes a criminal, the drug cartels, you know, who are involved. And in this case, in the Philippines, it's not even the dagger, it's not the state, which is so ironic. The state is the one that's supposed to protect your human rights. They are the duty bearer you know, for human rights. And yet that's what you see. So so in a way, it really is sad that that is the kind of picture that we see in our own country. And again, as I said, it means that all of us have to do even much more to get the country to and its ratification of many of these human rights conventions. You know, we ratified a lot of the most important human rights conventions, and yet here we are seeing this kind of situation. That just means that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of really changing the mindsets of the security forces, whether the armed forces, the military, or the police, as well as the implementation of programs like the NTSL-CAC, you know, this uh, this is something that uh, I haven't seen also in, in the countries that I've been to. You know, having a very systemic and uh, and comprehensive program like this uh, NTFL-CAC is something that's very quite unique. I mean, it's something that's unique in the Philippines. Can you tell us about this NTFL-CAC? This is the National Task Force for to End Local Communist Armed Conflict and Obviously, it's the insurgency program that's meant to quell and to, of course, uh, totally wipe out a communist insurgency. But in the process of implementing this, they just tag everybody as, say, uh, anybody who is critical of the state, you know, anybody who is really doing work in terms of empowering their own communities. 
these people or defending their communities against mining operations, uh, these are the people who are tagged terrorists and also called communists. You know, so so how can you have this kind of tagging that in the end leads to either you being killed extrajudicially, disappeared, or just imprisoned without with all the false charges filed against them? You know, so I, I think this is a totally a, a program that is very much against all the human rights conventions that the country has ratified. It should really be be withdrawn. It should be it should be there. I, I've did, been in dialogues with armed, uh, the, uh, the armed forces and some the, the police, and I tell them that, you know, the reason why there's this kind of insurgency is because of the basic issues that they are facing in terms of poverty, corruption, among others. And the way to solve this problem is by addressing these root causes of, of dissent, you know, the kinds of way where you impose a project and not even get the, the consent or not even consult the people who are directly affected, you know, these kinds of things cannot continue to happen that way. If it continues like that, no matter what you do, the kind of protest and resistance that people are putting up and that kind of program is just going to lead you towards being labeled as a country, as a state that doesn't respect human rights. Ma'am, in your work in Tebtaba, is there anything or any project that you're doing to specifically go against this kind of uh, operation? The work that we do is really to enhance the capacities of indigenous peoples to empower themselves, you know. Because we believe that if you are empowered, which means that you know what your rights are, that you are more united amongst yourself, and you are really more determined to defend your own territories and uh, lands and uh, resources, then that will give you a bigger chance of being able to stand up against such kinds of violations. So we do a lot of uh, training you now for indigenous peoples to understand what indigenous people's rights are. We help them, say, map their communities, do an inventory of the, the diversity, the biological diversity that are in their communities to know where the sources of water are among others, no? so that they will understand what their communities are, what the wealth in their territories are, and be more strengthened in terms of defending these, these territories and resources. We also encourage them to work closely with the local government units, of course, so that they will be able to advocate for their rights and to make the local government units that what they are doing is actually supporting you know, the government. In fact, I always say this in my meetings with governments, you know, we are part, we are helping build the nation. We are providing the diversity to this cultural diversity to the, to the nation. Of course, we are protecting biological diversity. There was this overlay of maps done, which were the protected areas are where the key biodiversity areas are. And all this overlap with ancestral domains of indigenous peoples. This in itself is an evidence that we are doing a lot to contribute to making the country more environmentally sustainable. So so that's what I would like to communicate more broadly to show that we are not just against development. We are for development that will sustain the ecosystems where we are living and that will not destroy the very source of life that we depend on. Okay. I'll go to a different topic. It's about the report last year by the Forest Tenure Funders Group, which found that yeah. of the $1.7 billion U.S. dollars pledged 
for supporting IPs in COP 2021, only 7% went directly to them. And about 19% of the pledge total has already been given, but most of the money has not been channeled directly to local communities because um, IP groups aren't, are unable to absorb large grants. What are your thoughts on this? I think that is a view that is a misrepresentation of what indigenous peoples are capable of. I don't believe that IP groups are not capable. In fact, one of the things that we do in Tuktuba is to train the communities to be to know how to you know make their own financial accountability more systematic. So we do a lot of trainings and people to account for every single cent that they receive. I think that's that's a myth that's being sort of being spread around to also to maybe to justify the some of the intermediary groups who would like to get the money on behalf of indigenous peoples. I know that there are some big, say, conservation or even environment organizations who are presenting themselves as the ones who are working with indigenous peoples and therefore some of this money should be provided to them and they will be the ones who will uh, distribute to the communities. But the reality is not like that. As you said, only 7% goes directly to indigenous peoples. And that is something that has to be rectified. Okay. Uh, and another topic about IP consent, something that we talked about, you mentioned earlier. In the Philippines, mining companies who obtain consent from IP groups to extract from their land, they give royalties to the IP groups. But there are times when the amount is not enough. Or if it is, the tribal leaders do not distribute it fairly among the members. What are your thoughts on this corruption among IP groups and inequitable distribution of mining firms? That is what we always say tell to our members. We have a national federation of indigenous organizations and communities as well. And this is what we always tell that we have to really account for any any money that we receive because we cannot be we are very much critical of the corruption that's happening in the government even within the National Commission on Indigenous Peoples. And we cannot be caught in that kind of situation ourselves. Of course, this is not to say that there are no indigenous organizations who are also not, you know, they are not being accountable. There are, and there are, in fact, in Mindanao, they call some indigenous leaders the indigenous dealers because they are also easily corrupted by, some of them are corrupted by mining companies to give the consent they create groups that are not the real authorities in the community who will give the consent and then they, the mining companies will claim that the consent has been provided. But that's because they also were able to pay or bribe some leaders, so-called leaders, to, to manufacture. In connection to that, what are your thoughts on IP groups selling their ancestral land, which is quite rampant? In the Indigenous People's Rights Act, you are not supposed to sell your ancestral lands or your, uh, especially your ancestral domain, because your ancestral domain is that's collective, that's collectively owned by the by the people, by the tribe, and so that should not be allowed. I come from Busao, no, and we are Kankanae, and we have a very strong customary law that you are not allowed to sell the land. If you will sell it, you, the first thing that you should sell it to your own relative. Our lands are never owned by outsiders. Even if it's a piece of small land, uh, it has to be sold to your relatives first if you don't have relatives who would like to buy it. People from the community. And that stays, uh, that is uh, a law that exists up to now and everybody follows that. But that's because maybe we are maybe we are the majority of course in our own communities, but that's not 
a situation that's not like the situation that we find in other places, especially like Mindanao, where in ma many cases there are the minorities already, the settlers, there are a bigger number of settlers in their communities. So they also find themselves in very more difficult uh, situations. But I don't think that they should be selling their lands because the moment you sell the, your land, then that's it. The law, since that's part of the law, there should also be a mechanism wherein those kinds of transactions should be prevented. And the community itself should be the ones who will also uh, impose that kind of discipline among their own people. So ma'am, don't you think it, it, it's something that they can't help? Because yeah. Precisely because they don't really have uh, livelihood. The resources, exactly. That, but that's precisely why we also promote economic empowerment. Even if you have your land, if you cannot uh, do livelihood projects or make it more productive or engage in productive endeavors that would allow you to have uh, economic income, then that's where you can see people have to sell their land. And, and that's a very unfortunate. That's precisely why we are also calling for for the state and, of course, for other entities to support the efforts of indigenous peoples to economically empower themselves, which means them being able to have the means of production, whether these are rice meals or, you know, or any kinds of technology that will help them in their production and also have access, have the knowledge to be able to develop their own organic fertilizers and pesticides so that they will not have to depend on the environmentally destructive chemical fertilizer and pesticides, among others. And that should be the part of the package of the support that the community should receive if they ask for it. And unfortunately, that's not what, what's happening, you know, and what, what the reality is, there are several communities who already have their uh, certificates of ancestral domain titles. They have their ancestral domain sustainable development plans, their ADSDPP. But nobody is uh, supporting them to implement their own uh, development plan. You know, that's not part of the budget of the NCIP that they should provide at least some seed money so their ancestral development plans will be implemented. And that's what's happening in the end. You know, what recourse do they have? Yeah. You know, in situations of desperation, yeah. if you have to, if somebody gets sick, mm -hmm. if you have to spend some money for some, some emergency, then that's the option that they have and you cannot totally blame them for that finally ma'am you will mm -hmm. be participating in the up upcoming cop 28 what will be your main agenda one is to ensure that you know the human rights references to the, the need to ensure that human rights is at, at the center of climate change solutions you know whether this is under renewable energy or even the voluntary carbon market where Indigenous people's rights are being protected, their lands are not being taken away, their consent is being obtained, among others, no? They are not being criminalized, no? Secondly, of course, the issue of direct access to the climate funds. There should be a mechanism set in place where Indigenous peoples can have direct access and it doesn't have to go through these intermediaries. And, and thirdly, pushing for what I mentioned earlier, that that the ones responsible for the uh, climate crisis should really bear the bigger responsibility in terms of cutting back emissions that they are doing, but also providing the, the resources that are needed by poorer communities and poorer countries so that they will be able to adapt to the impacts of climate change. Speaking of the loss and damage fund, so recently there wasn't any outcome 
from the uh, from the LND meeting in Egypt. Countries failed mm-hmm. to agree on key aspects of the of the fund. Do you see this improving, or do you see a better outcome in COP twenty eight, or are we being realistic? And do you think that that nothing will transpire in the upcoming COPs? I think that something's going to happen. Even if this whole uh, concept of transition committee of laws and damage or the funds, this were thought impossible in the past because many of the rich countries, who of course were the sources of these kinds of laws and damage, are totally uh, resisting against any effort to take a bigger burden for this, you know. But it, in the end, it happened that the transition committee was created, the agreement to set a fund was, was passed, so hopefully, the, the the hope for the next cup is that they will put money where their mouth is, that they will not just have this so-called fund, but in the end, they will not even put anything on it. I mean, we know that some money has been put by a few states, but this should really be adequate enough to be able to address the issue in any substantial way. So I still think that something might happen. It's because the majority of countries the G77 plus China, they are going to push hardly for this. Of course, the the system in the COP is that it should be an agreement reached by consensus. But I would like to believe that something will happen there because, you know, we are in such desperate straits that if we don't get those main carbon emitters to, to carry the responsibility, then it's really going to mean disasters, not just for us, but also for them. Economic and political interests are always at play. You know? And so those are the kinds of challenges that we continue to face. But we never give up hope. We will just want to keep on fighting because that's the right thing to do. Okay. Ma'am Vicky, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And thanks a lot for allowing me to speak very openly on these issues. Thank you. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by logging on to eco-business.com. Follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter.